Welcome back to a special episode of the Hatchets Weekly News Podcast, getting to the bottom of it. I'm Alec Rich. The year is 1910, and GW is facing a financial crisis. Forced to sell its major downtown property at the time, just east of the White House, the university borrowed funds to relocate to Foggy Bottom two years later, where it set up shop in what is now Listener Hall. At the time, Foggy Bottom was a largely industrial area, filled with factories lining the Potomac River and those working those factories living around them. In the years after that 1912 purchase, the university embarked on a century-long expansion across Foggy Bottom, which was led incrementally by Presidents Marvin, Elliott, and Trachtenberg most notably. Coinciding with the university's growth in the mid-20th century was this upheaval of the community itself. So over time, the manufacturing sector shrunk as staples of the area today, like the World Bank and the State Department, overhauled the fabric of the community and also contributed to a growing trend of gentrification. And that has only continued in the decades after, as affordability in Foggy Bottom has skyrocketed. By the time President Stephen Knapp began his tenure as president in 2007, relations between the Foggy Bottom community and the university were tense. Through his community engagement, Knapp began to build back stronger relations with the community, which laid the groundwork for President LeBlanc when he began as president in 2017. Along with this podcast episode, the Hatchet has created a virtual map that tracks the university's expansion over time in the community. We strongly encourage you to take a look at that in conjunction with this episode on the Hatchet's website. Now, this brief history of GW Foggy Bottom relations has been covered before, but it leaves many difficult questions unanswered in terms of where we are today. Some of those include where does GW's relationship with community stand right now? What should the responsibility of an urban university like GW be to its surrounding area? And how can a university that has always been interested in improving and expanding its facilities balance that ambition with the needs of the permanent residents living in Foggy Bottom? We'll try to answer all of those in this episode through a series of interviews that I conducted with community members and experts. But we'll start here with Marina Strzniewski, who is a GW graduate and a Foggy Bottom resident who recently concluded a seven-year run as president of the Foggy Bottom Association. Strzniewski discussed how the relationship between GW and the community has evolved over time, starting with what was a contentious relationship on a President Stephen Trachtenberg. Great. Marina, thanks so much for joining me. How do you think GW's relationship with the Foggy Bottom community has evolved over time and especially over the last seven years during your tenure as president? The relationship between the university and the community was testy at best. I attribute a lot of that, quite honestly, to the president of the university at the time who is said to have said that he envisioned GW going all the way to the river. Well, with people who lived in houses between the university and the river. And he didn't, in terms of the community members, seriously. He was very dismissive of them. And all in all, it was a really toxic relationship. (laughs) Once Steve Knapp came in, Steve War kind of calmed down a bit. Um, and then, but, but people were still not inclined GW as a resource, even in terms of helping to solve problems that, that GW had the ability to help solve. Um, Student noise and trash, for example, the the, uh, students who lived in the historic district, there were houses that were functioning as fraternity houses. And I got a group of neighbors together and we went 
really high up in the, the food chain to the university and explain the situation and say, you've got to do something. And because we went in, but with all our facts aligned, we had pictures and uh, you know people who had bad experiences and such. And we presented this in a really rational way and it was well received. They heard us. Strzynski said that example shows one of the main ways that the university has demonstrated this renewed commitment to the community in the last decade, which is by actually listening to those living in it. She added that a mix of community engagement, transparency, and community reinvestment by the university will be crucial to maintaining that relationship moving forward as the school embarks on future projects. But zeroing in specifically on that point of reinvestment into the community, it's important to understand what that would actually look like in practice for an urban school like GW. For that, I spoke to Greg Squires, a Foggy Bottom resident and GW professor of sociology, public policy, and public administration. He made the point that GW is clearly not a social service agency or a bank, but universities as a whole tend to take more from their communities than they give back. To counteract that and help address some of the major problems, not just in Foggy Bottom, but also across DC as a whole, like gentrification and homelessness, Squires recommended some actions that the university has discussed but is yet to act on. Great. Professor Squires, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So first, just I want to start out. So how does GW and it strike a balance really between um, it serving as this major economic anchor in the community while also kind of protecting the fabric of that same community as well? Well, if we think about GW as being a major player in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, not just as a, as a, a neighbor in Foggy Bottom, there are a couple of things that, that I would like to see us do. About, about 10 years ago when President Knapp created uh, the first uh, uh, Council on Diversity and Inclusion, we made two recommendations that had to do with the university's relationship uh, that we haven't really acted upon. One was to increase uh, the purchase of goods and services uh, from distressed neighborhoods in, in Washington, D.C., to, to, to contract more with vendors, say, in Ward 7 and Ward 8 than, than we have in the past. Uh, and a second recommendation was to use financial service providers that have a good record of community reinvestment. Uh, the university has large sums of money which it deposits. We use financial services to make all kinds of payment, to, to finance buildings, uh, and to, to do all kinds of things. And, and universities, universities have documented records through something called the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act. We can actually see which, which lenders are making commitments to the entire metropolitan area and which ones are not. Uh, and the university does some things in, in these directions. But at the time we made this recommendation, this was followed by several meetings over a number of years, and we never even got a clear handle on just where the university is purchasing goods and services, uh, let alone a, a plan to increase our commitment to, to underserved areas. And, and I emphasize these things because they don't necessarily, they don't really require additional money. You know, it's easy to say the universities should spend more money. We should subsidize people's housing because it's expensive. Well, these are recommendations that don't call for increasing amounts of money, but just perhaps a different allocation of funds so the GW can do a better job of addressing the serious problems that Washington, D.C. has, that all cities have, to address the un uneven development of the city, to, to help deal with issues of gentrification and, and deindustrialization and concentrated poverty. Uh, but these are two steps where, again, there's been discussion, but there hasn't really been a lot of action. 
and, and right now I understand the university's focused on the, the specific challenges of the pandemic and uh, including the financial implications uh, that involves. Uh, but there, there are, we will return to normalcy at some point. Uh, and I'm hoping these issues can return or, or become part of the agenda in ways that they haven't in the past. Professor Squires, thank you so much. Sure, thank you. But returning to the central debate over what role university like GW should play in the community, a key area to consider is the role of developers. They obviously work with the university to fulfill a vision for it, and in GW's case, companies like Boston Properties, which is redeveloping 2100 Pennsylvania Avenue and Rice Hall, or MRP Realty, which has worked to develop the shops at 2000 Pennsylvania Avenue, they serve as an extension of GW. But given the fact that we are in a city, these companies aren't working in a vacuum, which means that any improvements they make will likely cause ripple effects in the area that raise affordability prices for both businesses and residents. So how does the university balance rising costs and that drive to continue expanding, and where do developers come into play? For that, I spoke to David Johnson, who is a vice president, architect, and higher education design strategist with the firm Smith Group. So David, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure, Alec. Thanks for having me. I was kind of wondering... How do you kind of, I guess, strike the balance between these any projects that are going to be an improvement to the university, especially we've seen this in Boggy Bottom, are going to increase um, property values and, and rents and things like that, which leads to tenant turnover. So how do you kind of balance the, those two different dynamics, trying to keep keep that cross section intact while also helping the university? It's difficult for us to predict what the collateral economic impact of our development will be like you said it is sort of predictable <laughs> generally predictable that you know development will increase the value of adjacent parcels and that will result in some degree of gentrification i think this goes back to the idea that in particular have the opportunity to be city builders and not just consider that single development. And and that's not to suggest that private universities don't do that. You know, they're very sophisticated. They do have comprehensive master plans. They do have, you know, they have the right motives. Um, But I just think that there is a different sensibility that emerges when you're thinking about the project as an extension of urban fabric, public realm, and uh, a community in the broadest sense rather than kind of a restricted uh, uh, development that's restricted to notions about what the university is, what the institution is. Johnson went on to add that there has to be a frank discussion about the ability of the community to shape the expansion policies of an institution, and potentially an ability for a school like GW to, quote, pursue physical development that supports the framework for social progress, end quote. He said that can primarily be through means, as Squires also mentioned earlier, like leveraging university land and resources to create more equitable properties for tenants and residents. So it's this notion of being a responsible city builder that could potentially offset some of the repercussions of development. This leads us into a conversation of what GW has planned for the future in terms of that development. So GW has partnered with the architecture and design firm Cooper Robertson as part of its strategic campus and facilities master plan to make improvements to campus moving forward. While the university doesn't plan to spend money on these projects in the near future, and the pandemic will likely impact money that the university can spend moving forward, we should take a few minutes to see what those improvements might look like in Foggy Bottom. For that, I spoke with the Hatchet's Metro editor, Jared Wardwell, who said some of the focal points of the master plan as it stands now 
could include a diagonal walkway running across campus from the Milken Institute School of Public Health to the Elliott School of International Affairs, a STEM hub centered around the northwest end of campus, and the creation of a flagship student center near Kogan Plaza to create a more solidified heart of campus. He also spoke about what the university can do on its end here to not anger local residents as far as traffic or construction noise concerns. Jared, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, great to be here. How does the universe plan for kind of striking a balance between the need to you know, improve its facilities while at the same time kind of preserving the fabric of the Foggy Bottom community itself, which has been combative to major changes over the years? Officials need to sort of keep in mind uh, the ways in which locals might use public space on and around campus um, and, and making sure that they're not taking away from uh, the manner in which um, local residents, you know, might be going about their day-to-day lives. Foggy Bottom is um, located uh, very close to the middle of D.C., and so obviously it's going to have a lot of um, traffic moving through campus. It's near um, several apartment buildings, so there's there's this need to sort of account for um, the people who, who live very close to campus, um, even though officials want to prioritize students. There's also other people uh, in other people's daily lives who are affected by um, the space around Foggy Bottom. So a major way in which, you know, locals um, and nearby residents and employees use campus space um, is obviously the roads um, driving through uh, the Foggy Bottom campus. Um, so making sure that, you know, like I mentioned before, each street does not block um, traffic would probably be one of the most critical prov- provisions in ensuring campus master plan um, and eventual efforts to to bring this all to fruition um, making sure that this sits well with the community. He also added some of the ways that Cooper Robertson can be transparent with the community in the master planning process. Basically, like I've been saying, um, the bottom line is communication is key. Um, so Cooper Robertson would need to make sure that they're continuously being open and transparent, you know, about the state of the campus master plan, how this is progressing um, as we enter the stages of, of designs potentially being finalized, um, and, and they should be making sure, you know, that they're, they've used these workshops that they've held. They've clearly had an intention to gauge community feedback, student feedback, um, faculty and staff input, um, from the workshops they held in, in February, from the presenta- presentations they held in May to ensure that they're using these suggestions that they're getting from community members, taking them into account, prioritizing these comments, um, and using those to sort of guide their decision-making and design process. Um, critiques like I mentioned, the H Street shutdown, they're legitimate concerns. Uh, obviously, um, locals should be worried about whether or not they get to drive down a, a heavily trafficked road. Um, so those should be you know, respected by officials and the design team, and they should use that to determine what or uh, what not to include in these final designs. Jared, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me, Alec. Lastly, David Johnson from Smith Group mentioned some of the ways his firm has worked with the universities to gauge feedback on what students want in a master plan. Those include things like focus groups, which Boston Properties did with GW students virtually in the spring. But Johnson also mentioned the usefulness of technology by creating full websites and apps to survey students and provide them with a platform for feedback in terms of a master plan. He added that as a developer, you have to be willing to go directly to the surrounding community for feedback rather than forcing them to seek you out, and you have to be transparent. This was something reiterated by Marina Strzniewski as it pertains to Foggy Bottom. I remember working with somebody a long time ago and she referred to her, she said that her success 
was due largely to a treaty of no surprises. And I think that's a great way to operate. It's like th this, this issue is going to come up um, and you, this is what we're thinking to give the community some time to think about it before it's a done deal. Goes for the, the developers, any developers that are working on behalf of GW as well is to communicate early and communicate often. To check out the Hatchets map showing the university's expansion across Foggy Bottom over time, you can head over to the Hatchets website. Thank you to Marina Strasniewski, Greg Squires, Eddie Suarez, David Johnson, and Jared Wardwell for being a part of this episode. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by Alec Rich and is produced by Gwen Wheeler.